Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The new arrival got a dismal reception in New York. One local warned of a great commercial depression, another, an alarming crisis, the third, a period of unprecedented stagnation. Martin Chuzzlewit was concerned, but he needn't have been. America, his omniscient narrator warned, always is depressed and always is stagnated and always is at an alarming crisis and never was otherwise. Charles Dickens, writing in 1843, was confident that the Americans' fears about their country were overblown, but that they wouldn't go away either. History has proved him correct, and the United States has faced bouts of collective anxiety ever since. Now, less than a fifth of Americans say they're satisfied with the way things are going in the country, one of the lowest levels ever recorded. But more than four-fifths are satisfied with the way things are going in their personal lives. Because amid the negativity, there are plenty of reasons for optimism. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what's going right in America? Poverty rates are rising and life expectancy is falling. The majority of Americans think that the economy is getting worse and that the world has a poor opinion of their country. Despite those bleak metrics, there have been some bright spots this year. What in America is working? And will those good things continue into next year? With me for this perhaps uncharacteristically optimistic episode of Checks and Balance are Idris Kaloon, who's sitting over the table from me in London, and Charlotte Howard. Idris, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. It was very nice to get lunch with you just a few minutes before. Normally, this is recorded during breakfast, so very nice reprieve. But London is extremely cold, much colder than DC was. So We're going to see how you podcast running on dumplings rather than running on black coffee. Right, it's going exactly. to be an interesting test. Exactly. And Charlotte, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I've been really struck this week by the cold in London. It's not just that it's cold. I'm not in London, obviously. But when I'm in any Zoom call, of which I have many with people in London, everyone is wearing parkas and scarves and generally looks like they're trying to stay warm despite very cold temperatures. And it underscored for me just how wide the gap is between Americans' experience of the war in Ukraine and people in Europe. It's just a very, very different environment. And the cost, the really high cost of heating is evident visually for me in a way that struck home this week. Yeah, that's a real thing. I'm in a WhatsApp group with our Ukraine correspondents, and there was much discussion of the fact that Kiev is in fact warmer than London at the moment. London is unusually cold, and Brits love to talk about the weather. So on one level, that's making us happy. Okay, 
when we were discussing what to podcast about this week, Idris suggested that we do an episode on all the things going right in America. And as Idris's allotted role sometimes in the podcast is to pour cold water over my enthusiasm and Charlotte's as well, we thought this was particularly intriguing. There's also going to be a special quiz or an even more special than normal quiz at the end. So make sure you stick around for that. The way this is going to work, each of us is going to pick something that they want to talk about that's gone well in America this year. And I thought we'd start with something I've talked about a bunch on the podcast this year, which is Ukraine and specifically America's policy towards Ukraine. Earlier this week, I spoke with Corey Sharkey of the American Enterprise Institute. She's a foreign policy expert, a military expert, and is part of all sorts of high-level discussions in D.C. So I began by asking her how those conversations have changed over the course of the past year. In September of 2021, the conversations in Washington were about whether any aid should be given to Ukraine if Russia invaded, because Ukraine would obviously lose so quickly that American weapons would just end up in Russian hands. By February, the conversation was, well, we can give them offensive weapons, but they can't range Russian territory By May, the conversation was, well, we'll give them weapons that range Russian territory, but they promise not to attack Russian territory. By August, when air bases in Crimea started being attacked, the conversation in Washington was, well, of course, Crimea is Ukrainian territory. So I think the direction of travel in Washington has been towards greater and greater commitment to the defense of Ukraine. Just to take you back to the fall or the winter of last year, there was still a lot of discussion about America's hasty withdrawal from Afghanistan. It wasn't at all clear that the Biden administration was going to have a foreign policy success of this kind. Looking at how things have gone this year, I'm struggling to recall an example of a more successful US foreign policy, certainly in the time I've been doing journalism covering (laughs) America. I mean, is it, why has this gone so right, do you think? Well, it's gone so right because of Ukrainians. But I agree with you that the Biden administration recovered after the humiliating debacle of the abandonment of Afghanistan in the summer of 2021 and really has made a smart set of choices. I would have preferred that the president didn't agonize out loud about the prospects of escalation or of nuclear use, because I think that encourages nuclear proliferation and encourages Russian nuclear threats. And I would have hoped they would give more support more quickly to Ukraine. But I agree with your judgment that the Biden administration has been judicious. I love the way the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, gets his compatriots, his counterparts, together every single month to meet with the Ukrainian leadership to find out what they need and who has it that they can give. I think the economic sanctions and the continued pressure on the Russian economy and on the Russians diplomatically has been really smart. And it has reminded people that the United States can actually act in a synchronized fashion. It can actually lead an international collective of allies. And it does actually have staying power when it cares about the outcome. And Corey, because I'm a journalist, one of my natural instincts is to look for things that might go wrong. And this year, (laughs) there have been plenty of suggestions on this front, right? There have been lots of articles written about whether, as Europe got chillier over the winter, the transatlantic alliance might fray a bit, 
towards Ukraine. You're somebody who's you know, done a lot of work on, <laughs> on transatlantic things. Um, that also seems like something that has held together better than we might have expected, perhaps. Europeans have done an outstanding job. You know, it's easy to slip into the narcissism of small differences in transatlantic relations. But how many of us would have bet $20 two years ago, that Germany would make the domestic sacrifices they are making for the assistance of Ukraine, that the European Union would move out smartly with price caps on Russian oil, with all sorts of assistance. It's not just the United States that has done well on Ukraine. It is the West that has done well on Ukraine, including Australia, Japan, South Korea, Singapore joined in on the economic sanctions against Russia. It's really been quite heartening. Yes, and that in turn has reinvigorated the idea of the West, which was somewhat beaten up after the past couple of decades. Can we move to what's happening now and what might happen in 2023? What sorts of conversations are you having in Washington? You know, you're a super well-connected person in DC. <laughs> what sorts of conversations are you having in Washington about what the next phase of American support looks like? Yeah, there is anxiety about the escalation potential as Ukraine continues to drive Russia out of Ukrainian territory, concern about Ukraine crossing the threshold and beginning to routinely target military targets on Russian territory, concern about how Russia may respond to that, concern about the potential for Russia attempting to drag neighboring states NATO member states into the equation. That is, Russia might find it less humiliating to lose a war to NATO than to lose a war to Ukraine, given the rhetoric and ideology that drove the invasion. The possibility of punitive attacks, even potential nuclear weapons attacks on Ukraine by Russia. So there's a lot to worry about as Russia's invasion fails. But we also shouldn't lose sight that the point is for Russia's invasion to fail and that those of us who are safest and strongest shouldn't blanch at the risks we are running and Ukrainians are running because Ukraine is so fearless about those risks. Charlotte, you and I both became journalists after the invasion of Iraq, but really the whole time we've been looking at American politics as grown-ups, there's been really a series of failures in foreign policy. You know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, the Russian invasion of Crimea. On one level, I'm having a hard time processing America's Ukraine policy being as successful as it is. One of the things that's helping me understand it is, you know, as Corey said, this kind of policy only works if you have a very willing ally, which America has in Ukraine, and an extremely brave ally. And one of the highlights of this year for me journalistically has been reading the coverage by our colleagues based in Ukraine who are doing extraordinary work at the moment. I absolutely agree with that. The cover of The Economist this week features Ukraine and coverage by our colleague Arkady Ostrovsky, as well as others. And Arkady was just in Ukraine with Zelensky, speaking with his top commanders and has had extraordinary access. And one thing that I would say about America's relationship with Ukraine is both that it has been a success to date, 
but also that there's so far still to go on this. And that was underscored by Arkady's coverage, which essentially lays out how Zelensky and his commanders think that Russia is really amassing a big new effort to scale up its aggression in Ukraine in the new year. Precisely when is unclear, but that's what Zelensky and his officials anticipate. And so I think the obvious question going forward is whether America's support will be sustained and how that support might evolve. I do think that the new Congress does imperil some of this continued aid, but not existentially. I think that ultimately there will still continue to be money spent. I think even though Americans are not as close to it as Europeans, they still feel a sort of kinship with the Ukrainian struggle and a feeling that what's going on is a fight for freedom in a fundamental way. And I don't think, although Americans might complain a bit about some of the money, I think the big thing that moves American opinion is really whether or not troops are involved and there's no prospect of that. So I don't see that ending. I think that it could be used as something of a political pawn as Republicans and Democrats get to negotiating about debts and deficits and these sorts of things. But I really don't see the aid sort of lapsing immediately. I know some of the most out there isolationist Republicans have intimated that that's what they want, but I don't think that will happen. I hope you're right about that. I mean, there will be a bit of a divide between Republicans in the Senate and Republicans in the House, right? The Senate leadership is very pro-Ukraine. Mitch McConnell's been there. John Barrasso has been there. So the senior Republican senators have spent time in Kiev and I think really get it and are keen to get the Ukrainians as much assistance as they can. The House might be a bit harder, but I think one of the things we're seeing in this lame duck session is the administration trying to get as much kit to Ukraine as it can and sort of establish a precedent that's then harder to overturn. I mean, there's reporting at the moment that quite soon the administration will announce that batteries of Patriot missiles, which are the best anti-missile defenses, anti-aircraft defenses that America can get to Ukraine, will be going there soon. And I, that will make a huge difference or save a lot of lives, make it harder for Russia to take out Ukrainian infrastructure. And I think that once those Patriot batteries are there, America will really have to keep them resupplied no matter what Congress looks like. So, you know, hopefully things will continue in the right direction there. OK, we'll look at two other optimistic news stories of the year in just a moment. But first, if you're feeling particularly jolly at the moment, please give us a gift and fill out our listener survey. We're always trying to make the show better and knowing more about you really helps us to do that. To fill it out, go to economist.com slash survey should take around 10 minutes and you'd really be doing us a favor if you filled that in so thanks in advance again the link is economist.com slash us pod survey and we'll put that in the notes for this episode charlotte you're up next what was your good news story of the year I wanted to talk about the surprising resilience of the jobs market. And as I hope we'll get into, it's kind of a good news, bad news story. But I asked our U.S. economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, about what's behind that jobs data and whether they came as a surprise to him. I personally have been somewhat surprised, but I think more generally, a lot of market observers and economists have been surprised as well. Because, you know, if you look at what happened with the economy this year, Inflation obviously was incredibly high, four-decade high. The Federal Reserve had its sharpest monetary tightening in four decades, taking interest rates from basically 0% to 4% over the course of the year. Typically, that would lead to quite a sharp economic slowdown and to a big rise in unemployment. In fact, what we've had is continued fall in the unemployment rate. About 4 million jobs were created over the course of the year. There's now more Americans employed than before the pandemic. So it's actually been an incredibly strong year for the jobs market. 
And that says growth data itself has been pretty weak. What's behind that? Well, a few things feed into it. So one, there's just been a natural recovery from the depths of the pandemic. So everybody was looking to staff up again. Number two, because of the pandemic, there was obviously a lot of stimulus pumped into the economy, both by the federal government and by the central bank. Arguably, that's led to an overheating of growth, so potentially stronger jobs growth than you would want to see. And then a third factor, which is a more negative one, is that the jobs market actually isn't fully back to normal. If you look at the labor force participation rate, that's actually below where America was before the pandemic. One of the factors in that is that there's been a big, big surge of early retirements, basically people leaving the the labor force and not returning. So that means that there's kind of been this supply-demand imbalance where you have companies demanding a lot of work but the actual supply of workers is relatively constrained compared to where it was in 2019. So all of that has fed into quite remarkable labor market tightness. Is there any sign that that might be reversed, for instance, as the economy slows, that older workers who thought they could depend on their 401k actually return to the workforce? Is there any sign of that yet or not quite? Not yet. And that's one of the things that the central bank, but economists as well, have been looking for. In fact, if you look at labor force participation rate in the past couple of months, it's basically plateaued. It sort of had been ticking up over the course of the year, and and that upward march has stopped. I think the big picture, though, is that this labor market tightness is not a great thing. It's been decent for workers' wages, but obviously it's it's really been quite stressful for a lot of employers, a lot of companies. And it's one of the reasons why even now looking at kind of headline inflation, it looks like things are moving in the right direction. The Federal Reserve still remains very, very concerned about the inflation outlook for next year because of labor market tightness and the way that's feeding into wage growth, which then feeds into underlying inflation, which therefore keeps the pressure on the central bank to keep interest rates very elevated. It's one of the reasons right now why the base case for most economists is that the economy will be in an outright recession in the first half of 2023, and the unemployment rate will most certainly rise over the course of the year. That's one of the things that's so fascinating to me about the jobs data from this past year and how it inverts a dynamic that is usually quite positive politically for an administration, i.e. a really strong jobs market. In this case, that it actually can be a bad thing for the economy is not a phenomenon that many presidents have had to deal with. And you have done reporting on this, right, where you've laid out what this actually looks like. So tell me how this plays out on the ground. Obviously, it varies from place to place. I did visit Minnesota last month. The reason I went there is that of all states in America, it, along with Utah, has the lowest unemployment rate in the nation. And I went to the part of Minnesota that has the lowest unemployment rate in the state. So a city called Northfield that has an unemployment rate of roughly 1.2-1.3%, which you know, just almost defies belief that unemployment could be that low. But when you speak to companies there from the hospital all the way down to kind of the local little cafes, everybody is struggling to find workers. And it means that life for people who live there has just become a lot more inconvenient. It's harder to find doctors. The cafes and the restaurants have had to cut hours. The manufacturers, they've not been able to operate to the full extent that they would like to as well. So I don't want to say that society is breaking down, but you simply see a city and more broadly speaking, a country that can't function to the full extent when unemployment is so incredibly low.
Idris, thinking back to earlier in the year, one of the reasons I thought Republicans were going to do really well in the midterms was I thought that America would be in recession by now. It was something a lot of economists were forecasting because the Fed had essentially lost control of inflation and would have to jack interest rates up so much that you'd have a really a hard stop. That hasn't happened, which is great news. But from what Simon's saying, it sounds like uh, economic consensus now is that that's a recession delayed rather than a recession averted. Yeah, I think that neither recession that we worried about, so the initial COVID recession and the one caused by the Federal Reserve tightening has been as bad as anticipated. In, in fact, I think one thing that doesn't get enough credit is how much the uh, economic monetary stimulus, even though it might have been excessive, what we see now. But, you know, it actually did a pretty good job at insulating people from the economic consequences of the severe dislocation that the pandemic created. The The programs that were launched then were successful in reducing hunger to even lower levels than we'd experienced before. And I think that this recession also has, or at least the recession that we're anticipating, hasn't been quite as bad as as we feared. By and large, you know, it's hard to oftentimes find a good thing to say about economic management. But I think that in a few ways, America's done well. You know, they, they always, a lot of macroeconomists use the metaphor of landing the plane, which is what you have to do when uh, the recession basically is emergency landing. And normally, there's some breakage that happens. But hopefully, this one will be a bit softer than folks had anticipated. Yeah, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this problem is that I just find it so fascinating looking month by month at figures, not just the number of jobs added, but also the labor force participation rate and how it varies by gender and how it varies by age and all these things. Because the unemployment rate was 3.7% in November, and average hourly wages were up 5% compared with the year earlier. And both of those are just substantively good things, one would think. But then when you look closer, there's all these dynamics behind it. So the labor market is tight for a few reasons, and not all of them are good. They have to do with the retirements, the early retirements that we heard about, but also because immigration is down and because people of working age are staying out of the labor market. And the labor force participation rate has fallen for women, but there's been a continued multi-decade decline in the share of men in the workforce. And that then points to all other manner of questions, right? So these are really big things for the American economy to consider and politicians to consider. One is, does America need more immigration for sustained economic growth? What does it mean economically and politically when more and more men are dropping out of the labor force? And then the last one is, if there's a sustained period, which now there has been, in which employers are really struggling to find jobs, how do those jobs change? In some instances, it's by making those jobs more attractive. So Walmart, for instance, is not just raising pay, but has had more predictable schedules for its workers, which is, I think, uh, unequivocally a good thing. And then there's also automation, investments in automation that employers have made in order to help overcome this gap. And that can boost uh, the economy's total productivity. And it, there's a lively debate, both externally and internally, about the effect on, on low-skill workers of that. Yeah, and just to bring it back to the politics, I mean, one of the things that was interesting covering the midterms, I thought, was there's a general assumption that they were being run against the backdrop of a bad economy, right? Because inflation was so high. But I remember talking to Dan Rosenheck, who, along with Elliot Morris, built our forecasting model. And Dan was saying, if you look historically, the correlations that matter most are things like unemployment and wage growth, where actually November 
the American economy was pretty strong, right? And inflation has historically been a bit less important. So again, maybe as an analyst of politics, I put a little too much emphasis on inflation and not enough on the other things. I mean, the other thing is that gas prices did go down. I think you mean petrol prices, Idris? <laughs> I say gas now. I'm so American. I have to correct myself when talking to Brits. Yeah, petrol prices. Um, <laughs> there was a fun period where, you know, Fox News was incessantly, I'm going to call them gas prices, was incessantly uh, talking about gas prices. And then the gas prices started to come down. And then they stopped talking about it. But like Ron Klain, the chief of staff for Joe Biden, all he wanted to talk about was look at the gas prices. They've gone down so much. So, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, Americans were certainly unhappy about inflation. But the one price that rules them all is still the one they see at the petrol station. So uh, <laughs> they, they might have uh, they might have given Democrats a break for that reason. Just to, um, I feel uncomfortable that Idris is being kind of cheerful. And so I'm going to claim his mantle of doom. And I think one thing to wonder about next year is both the effect of rising interest rates, but also the continued effect of rising interest rates playing out through more sectors of the economy. So not just housing and construction, for instance, but across a broader set of companies. And the reason why we should think about that is because there actually haven't been that many big layoffs. There have been some sort of headline-making layoffs at tech startups and at some big companies too, but they haven't been that broad across the economy. And the question is, as you have rising interest rates and depressed valuations in the stock market, what happens at companies that don't have money to service their debt? So that's something to think about in the coming year, the many ways in which rising interest rates will continue to have an impact across the economy. And so I share Simon's view that this was a good thing for workers in 2022. There's still an open question about 2023. And I would say that we're not remotely out of the woods. No, no. My sense is venture capitalists still have money to burn. You know, when, when they don't have any money for founders to light up, that's when, you know, things are really bad. We'll be back in a moment to hear Idris's good news story of 2022. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Idris, you are appointed naysayer on the podcast, but what was the good news that you wanted to talk about in this episode? What's gone right in America this year that's really struck you? So I actually wanted to talk about our politics. Uh, most people don't associate American politics with optimism, but uh, one thing that I found interesting was when I ran into Lee Drutman, who's a political scientist at the New America Foundation, a smart guy that a lot of us have enjoyed speaking with uh, over the years. You know, when I ran into him late in November, he seemed pretty upbeat and cheery for a man whose last book was called uh, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. So I called him back to ask him why he was so cheery. Well, the election deniers mostly lost, so that's 
a good thing. And I do see increasing interest in large-scale structural reform that I think is necessary. Sort of the arc of history is that things change when things are bad. It usually means that we're on the verge of a period of change. And when things are good, it usually means that it's not going to last that much longer. So that's why I'm optimistic. There's been a lot written about the decline of trust in government, but also other institutions. And I think one of the theories that at least some political scientists have for why that's the case is that people don't believe in the political efficacy of things like Congress, that, you know, their preferences are not reflected in some of the legislation that gets passed and they don't feel like, broadly speaking, the representatives do a particularly good job of representing them. Do you think that if you look at the list of legislation that Congress has passed oftentimes this year with some amount of bipartisan support, you know, it's, it's a fairly long list, uh, a lot of climate spending, gun control, that sort of thing. Do you think that there is something heartening in the legislative record that we've seen this year? I think Congress has made some progress, particularly heartened by the climate legislation. That is a very serious and important investment. The question of trust, though, is a complicated one because trust in institutions is low because I think a lot of people across the political spectrum in media and journalism are very critical of our institutions, but also I think they are right to be. I think in many ways, the low trust of our institution reflects a sort of mood of disenchantment and disorientation that is not really pegged to specific achievements, but more of a sense that something is broken in our society. So I wouldn't uh, try to link these things too closely. I think we often talk about how can we restore trust in our institutions as if it's just a matter of communicating their successes. But I think it may mean just that we need some new institutions that can start with higher approval ratings. And you think we're a little bit further in developing some of those institutions than maybe we were a year ago? Well, I think so. What we're going through is what I am increasingly convinced is probably the fourth great period of transformation in American politics with the 1960s and the Progressive Era and the Jacksonian Era before that, and maybe even before that, the Revolutionary War, which happened every 60 years or so. There's definitely a generational component to this. There's definitely a changing media technology landscape. There's definitely a kind of changing question of what it means to be an American and what counts as fairness and justice in our society and a broader sense of disorientation. So there are patterns here. History doesn't exactly repeat itself in the specifics, but it does in the general principles. I'm not sure if things will play out in the same way, but I think there's a real chance that as the wreckage continues, we will have a chance to actually build something new that maybe can last another 60 years. Yeah. The thing that really struck me about the 2022 election was that on the one hand, you just have this tremendous dissatisfaction with the way politics is going and these incredibly high wrong track numbers and all of these signs of disaffection. And yet not a single Senate incumbent lost, only one sitting governor lost, only seven House incumbents lost. So voters were unhappy, but the thought of the other party made them even more unhappy. 
So there's this pent-up demand for change in the system, but people keep returning the status quo because the change that they want is not the change that they're being offered. And that can't last forever. Charlotte, I feel like Idris cheated a bit there. He found somebody in Lee who just thought things had gotten so bad in American politics that essentially the only way is up, which I suppose is a version of optimism, but a slightly warped one. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I was fascinated by the way that he laid out that appetite for change, and it did to me convey a sort of exciting sense of possibility. And I was looking at some figures on Americans' mood before this episode and thinking about the question that Idris had posed to us. And I was struck by two facts. I just want to take a little sidebar. One is that 85% of Americans are satisfied with the way things are going in their personal life, which obviously excludes New Yorkers who are black belts and dissatisfaction. But it conveys that there are people who are not generally inclined to be grumpy. So 85% are satisfied with their personal life, but only 17% in the state of America. And that does provide another data point of which there are many, to suggest that there is this hunger for something a little different. And we saw that with President Trump, i.e. him representing something quite different. And I have a little glimmer of hope that the difference that is offered and the difference that Americans throw their support behind is something that's much more productive. Idris, do you want to say a little bit more on that paradox Lee highlighted there about Americans being really dissatisfied and cross with politics and cross with their politicians, and yet in the midterms, incumbents doing incredibly well? Well, one thing is you see that played out across a lot of different domains. People often say they think education in America is bad, rubbish, if you'd like, but that their kids personally are getting great educations. They say that they're really worried about crime, but they personally feel like their neighborhood is really safe. So there's a feeling that, you know, out there things are bad, even if in here things are a bit better, that's maybe cross and and not even necessarily political in politics itself. I think Lee kind of answered the question a bit where, you know, this idea that negative partisanship is, is maybe the most dominant force of however dissatisfied people feel personally with their representation and even members of their own party, they fear rule under the other party so much that they're not willing to to make a change and not willing to abandon people on their side, even if they might otherwise disagree with it. So I think that that helps explain some of this paradox. And it's very hard, you know, something like 90% of people who voted for Mitt Romney voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And obviously, those two men are on, I would say, safely different ends of the moral spectrum. You know, What unites those people, probably more than anything, is the feeling that democratic management would be worse. And Charlotte, one of the things we spent quite a bit of time covering this year, Idris in particular spent a lot of time covering, is what the outcome of those lengthy negotiations within the Democratic Party about what Build Back Better, this big government um, stimulus package slash subsidy for green technology package would look like. And the results of it, You know, at some points, it looked like it wasn't going to happen at all. What we got in the end looks pretty good, right? It does. It's not perfect, but it's certainly a ton better than nothing, the Inflation Reduction Act, in terms of its climate policies. But then I'd also point to a few other bills that 
I think we can forget about in the wake of the Inflation Reduction Act, which was such a big deal. But if you think back on Biden's first two years, you had the chips bill on chip making and competition generally with China. You had an infrastructure bill with $1.2 trillion. About half of that would go in the next five years to things like broadband, EV charging, et cetera. You have a gun control bill, which is certainly not as expansive as those who seek real gun control would advocate for. But after the shootings in Nivaldi, Texas, you had the federal government finally take at least some action to enhance background checks for buyers younger than 21, give states more money for red flag laws to remove weapons from people who are deemed a threat. You had this Respect for Marriage Act. I mean, there's a lot actually that's happened in the past two years. And Biden himself is just such a bad salesman. It's really hard to imagine someone worse at getting up and explaining big concepts simply for Americans or in a compelling manner. Yet he actually does have quite a bit to sell. I think that, you know, there's a long list of bipartisan successes or at least bills that got some bipartisan votes. But, you know, obviously the tone of the country's politics are not any less partisan. So even though Biden wanted to be a sort of unifier, and I, and I think he's gotten a good a good list of accomplishments for the first two years. He's probably not going to have that many more, you know, but he hasn't managed to, as he put it, heal the soul of the country. That still, I think, remains fairly rended in two. Is it time for the special quiz, I say, with poison dripping? I confess, normally I know what's going on in this podcast, and I don't in this case, so... I can see our quizmaster arriving. Oh, hello. Gentlemen. It's the intelligence's own Jason Palmer, the mystery quizmaster. Jason, welcome. I, again, I enjoyed it so much last year, I practically begged to come back. Well, we're delighted slash terrified to have you here. This is more fun than I thought. Okay. A quiz to test your memory of what happened in 2022. There are three rounds of three quick fire questions, plus a frankly cheesy bonus round at the end. That implies that the prior rounds aren't cheesy? This feels like a first. Cheese has been minimized until the end, at which point it's been definitively maximized. Okay, round one. Tell me, what links a major golf championship held every April in Augusta, Georgia, a wizard, or perhaps the wizard, and Scott, the former governor of Wisconsin? Major golf tournament is the Masters in Augusta. Yeah. The wizards, I think of basketball immediately, but that's probably not the most obvious place to go. The the wizard, perhaps. Not just a wizard. Of Oz. Hmm. Something about Walker being a common name across these. I don't know how that relates to the Masters. Is there a golfer named Walker? Uh, it's the three Senate candidates who yeah. lost. Blake Masters, remember Oz? Ding. Yeah, Herschel oh, Walker. Oh, that's so good, Adrian. That is good. That was really good. Uh, this is like the difference between crosswords and cryptic crosswords, which Brits understand what cryptic crosswords are, and Americans are like, what? Still don't. What is going on? Okay. Next question, what links the following three, Timothy Weah, Christian Pulisic, and Haji Wright? They were all on the U.S. soccer team. Come on. They're the children of immigrants. Did you guys watch the American games in the World Cup? They all... Well, did they all score goals? Yes. I mean, you, um, you asked me the question. You didn't answer it. They but. all scored goals. <laughs> I'm going to give you half a point for that. Oh, man. Okay. What links four cans of caffeine-free Diet Coke, a bottle of water, a toy gun, a replica musket, and a painting of George Washington crossing the Delaware River? These are things that are kept in the Oval, oval Office at all times? 
or something? Were these things that were on Elon Musk's bedside table that he tweeted out? Exactly right. Ooh, you are on fire today. Good work, Catrice. Round two, you're going to tell me who said the following things. Who said, nothing will change about my values or my behavior? Kirsten Cinema on Switching Parties? Yes. Yeah. That's one to Charlotte. Nice. Beep, beep. Right. Whoop. Next up, who said, freedom is under attack in your state? That's everyone. Everyone says yeah, that. Yeah, seriously. The world. Could be a Democrat or a Republican. Who said this perhaps not about his own state? Oh, Ron DeSantis. No, it was not. It was the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, about Florida. Yes. (laughs) One to you, John. Okay, uh, one more. Who said, I have enjoyed working with three presidents? Sounds like a Joe Biden. Sounds like every lobbyist in D.C. Who might have been deliberately miscounting? Oh, Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, maybe? Yes, she went on to mention Presidents uh, George W. Bush, Obama, and Biden, notably leaving out Mr. Trump. Okay, round three, numbers round. What do each of these numbers refer to? 546 votes. I'd just like to pause and note that I crushed round two. You did, and also you gave yourself a little woot-woot whenever you got a question right, which I think should be recorded and used. (laughs) I don't know know if two-thirds is crushing, but uh, sure. Idris, you have to lower the bar for me. Uh, I'm doing very well by my own standards. I think it's masterful. Okay, we're grading on a curve. your should be the official noise that we make hey, on look, the podcast when someone gets a can, question right. As Quizmaster, I can give out extra points for the woots. But Charlotte has this for crushing. That's the margin by which Lauren Boebert won her house race, which was the closest one this Are cycle. you comparing me to Lauren Boebert? No, I'm just, I'm just comparing. That was, that was an, an unfortunate segue, Indrees, it must be said. Okay, come on. Stay focused, guys. Numbers round 21 states, most recently Maryland and Missouri. What's that referred to? Marijuana legalization. Sure. Yes. Recreational yeah. cannabis is legal, uh, most recently in Maryland and Missouri, um, voted for at the midterms. Okay, last one of round three, 41%. I mean, there's a frankly infinite number of answers yes. here, but I am looking for just one. People who voted... In the Kansas abortion referendum, the oh, wrong... Keep them coming. No. 41%. Up until recently, I'd say it's the number of Republican voters who wanted Donald Trump to be the nominee again, but it's actually a bit lower than that now because the numbers have just moved. Hmm. Is it? Is it just Trump? No. No? Oh, more. Uh, Joe Biden's... Pr- no, it's lower than... Is it Joe Biden's approval rating? Uh, I should have le- let you talk yourself out of it. It is, in fact, Joe, Joe Biden's most recent approval rating according to polling done by us and YouGov. At the end of those three rounds, Idris is, uh, I would say, in the lead and not crushing it. Okay, to the bonus round. Strap yourselves in. The Bidens hosted French President Emmanuel Macron at a state dinner in December. The cheese course was three artisanal American cheeses. I'm going to describe them. I want you to tell me what state hmm. each is from. I was just going to say Wisconsin for so all of them. Three of them. Not a word for Vermont? Come on. No, yeah. Okay, I'm going to say if it's cheddar, it's... Hold on, hold on. Can I, can I give you the names of the cheeses? Nope. <laughs> Rogue River Blue, first ever American-made cheese to be named world champion at the World Cheese Awards, which I hope one day to attend. Each wheel hmm. of this blue cheese is wrapped in, quote, organic biodynamic Syrah grape leaves. That Vermont. Have sp- diving in with... Uh, eh. oh, <laughs> Any no. others? California or Oregon? If it's Oregon. Syrah, Syrah Oregon. grape leaves, you think somewhere on the West, West Coast. Coast. Oh, that's fine. I'll say Oregon, you say California, and we'll split it if we get... Idris, it goes to you. Oh, man. Oh. Really good. Okay, moving on. The Fawn, a sweet and nutty specialty cheddar. Wisconsin. Yeah. 
Everyone likes Wisconsin for this. Mm -hmm. Crushing the cheese round, Idris. Okay, Humboldt Fog, a soft, ripened goat's cheese with floral notes, herbaceous overtones, and a clean citrus finish. That has to be Vermont. Yeah, I think it's Vermont too. I like Humboldt Fog. Yummy. You've actually tasted Humboldt Fog. That gives you a massive extra 10 points in this round. The answer is California. No one crushed it. And at the end of the quiz, despite very promising early performance from Charlotte, Idris, it looks like you've won. Unlike Idris, I give credit where credit is due, and I was impressed by his performance in that round. Me too. He's a cheesy guy. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Jason, thank you for that. It's been an honor. Thank you for your questions. Have a great break. I hope there are many cocktails in it. Well, that's it for this episode. Next week, we'll be back with the first of a special two-part series about Charlotte's travels in Alaska, not just to the mainstream bits of Alaska, but to the truly wild, inaccessible parts of that beautiful state. Charlotte, do you want to just give us a little taste of what you were doing when you were up there? I took a trip there back in the summer, and I had my hat on as an energy and climate reporter. And Alaska is a fascinating state to me because there are two really big questions that Alaska faces that are important for the world. And one is the future of oil and the other is the future of ice and climate change. And these are playing out and interacting to dramatic effect in that state. So I have interviews with the governor and with leading climate scientists and with native Alaskans and many others. And I hope you enjoy the series. I'm really looking forward to hearing it. I haven't heard it yet. and I can't wait. Okay, well, thank you both for this week. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Stevie Hertz and Harriet Noble with research by Noah Abraham. Our sound engineer is Timo Saylor. Thank you to Hannah Mourinho for all her work on the podcast this year. If you're at a loss for what to ask for for Christmas or if you need a brilliant gift to give a loved one to show them that you really care, then an Economist subscription makes an excellent present. Go to economist.com slash uspod for the best introductory offer. You can get in touch with us via email. The address for that is podcasts at economist.com. We really enjoy your emails, so please keep them coming. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have that Alaska special on checks and balance next week and the week after. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.